Just before the message, we want to take a moment to just draw attention to another aspect of our church covenant as we've been doing over the last number of weeks and months here. The aspect we want to uh, point out right now is I will graciously exercise spiritual watchfulness towards others. Um, so again, if you remember at Beaumont Baptist Church here, you've covenanted with other, uh, your other members at church to do certain things. This is one of them. We see that this is a, not a man-made command, but a biblical command. In Galatians 6, verse 1, we read, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So we see we're not just to look out for the physical needs of others. Obviously, we, we do that. We help one another in, in lots of different ways, but it goes deeper than that. We're to, um, to watch out on a spiritual level. That can be a little more difficult sometimes than maybe helping somebody move or helping somebody bring a meal. Those are all good things that we should be doing, but um, we need to, uh, to know people in a deeper level often if we know that there's a spiritual need. The text starts by saying, if anyone's caught in a tra transgression, so um, you've got to know your brothers and sisters well enough that you would know if something wasn't right. And also, it, it sort of cuts both ways. If you come alongside one of your brothers or sisters in Christ and you point out something that you, is a concern to you um, in their lives, are they willing to accept that? I think naturally we usually all get defensive, but are we willing to recognize who's coming to us and what spirit they're doing that? If you read as I read and it sort of stuck out to me that you who are spiritual, um, you see it doesn't say that those who are perfect help your brothers in this. That's none of us. But if you're walking in the spirit, if you're not walking as a hypocrite with a, a, a log in your eye, so to speak, in that area, and you see something with a brother and sister in Christ, um, you're to, to come alongside them. And if that log isn't there, you're able to clearly, more clearly uh, remove the speck that's in their eye so that they can see and lastly, and very important in this, is it says that we should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. It's, it's difficult when you come alongside anybody or, or if you receive what you would feel as criticism in your own life. But if, if it happens in a way that's it's, it's loving, it's restorative in nature, it makes a big difference. So if you're coming to your brother and sister and something that's concerning, but they can tell that you're, you're coming because you care about them, like a parent comes to a parent, or a parent comes to a child sort, sort of spirit, that makes a huge difference. So keep that in mind. I think, think again, the lens of the gospel. Think of how patient the Lord is with us, what he saved us from, and how he's patient as we continue to stumble and fall, that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If that's our spirit with our other brothers and sisters, it's going to go a long way. So but we can't do this in our own strength, so just pray with me briefly for grace for this. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to be together, Lord, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to be together as the church family, Lord, and as we think of of watching out for one another, Lord. We thank you, Lord, as, as you are described yourself in the scriptures as the, the great shepherd, Lord. Pray that we would, we would look to shepherd one another, that we would be looking out for one another, that we would not be lone rangers and uh, proud, Lord, where we would not accept correction, Lord, that we would have relationships that are deep enough that uh, 
we could keep short accounts of our sin, that we could help one another, that we would not live in a way where we smile and nod and say everything's all right until it blows up and, and sometimes it appears too late. So I just pray, Lord, that that would be the spirit here at Beaumont, that we would exercise uh, loving correction with one another and concern in a spirit of gentleness and a spirit of respect and, Lord, in a, a spirit of restoration, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. We thank you for the teaching, Lord, that's within your word. Give us the grace to follow it properly. In Christ's name, amen. Just a moment, Dave's going to come and uh, preach God's word to us from the book of Jonah. Uh, but before he does, I do want to mention at this time that we have a nursery that's available in the back room right over here. If you want to make use of that as parents, uh, it's fully staffed. You're more than welcome to drop your children off there. And we have a kids class available at this time as well. It's just in the back room here. And kids, if you haven't already made your way there, uh, you can do that at this time. And uh, let's open up our Bibles together to the book of Jonah. And uh, Dave will come and preach God's word to us this morning. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for putting your word into our hands today. Thank you for bringing us here to hear it. Thank you for giving your spirit to us as we meet together to hear your word. Thank you for your never-ending love. And thank you that your love is not just thrown like a great net over all that exists, but that your knowledge and your wisdom extends that love to each one of us individually. Thank you that you see us, each one of us, with our weights and struggles, with our strengths, with our joys, wherever we are today. You see us and you know us. And you have brought your word to us in love today. I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to receive it. So that we could know you more fully. And worship you for all the wonder that you are. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Fiddle with this thing all over the house. That's, that's probably okay. Is that okay? Well, we are in Jonah, and uh, this is our final message uh, from the book of Jonah as we conclude our consideration of what this book has to tell us. And just to quickly review, because we're not uh, picking it up from last week, it's been several weeks since we were here, uh, people tend to think of Jonah as the part of the Bible that's about the, the whale, and it gets onto uh, places that really is kind of strange, like nursery walls and stuff like that. Um, but in fact, uh, Jonah is a, a picture of a person who belongs to God, this prophet Jonah, and his really catastrophic problems in wrestling with God. And we saw him uh, run away from God when God sent him to bring a message of uh, judgment and repentance to the terror state of Assyria, 
which had been terrorizing Israel and would go on to continue to terrorize it, uh, Jonah said no. He had been used by God to prophesy uh, national strength and national renewal for Israel in the face of Assyria, and he was not going to go in that direction, and he ran away. And so God brought a storm and uh, turned him around. And Jonah said, fine, I'll just die in the ocean. And he jumped into it. Well, he didn't jump. He induced people to throw him into the ocean. And uh, then God brought a fish along to rescue him from death in the ocean. And uh, so he reflected, as one does in situations like that, I imagine, never having been in a fish myself, but probably it would be a moment of reflection. And he reflected, and God really brought him around. And so Jonah uh, confronted some of the truths about God that he had been ignoring. But as we saw, he did not confront all of them. He did not repent of his rebellion. He just said, all right, well, no, let's, let's do it your way, God, because you have rescued me, and that's a wonderful thing. And so God sent him off to Nineveh again, and he went this time, and he gave God's message, and he was spectacularly successful successful on a level that it is really just hard to imagine. I mean, he shows up in this enemy city uh, full of people whose culture was driven by violence and oppression, and he just begins to give this message. And there is mass repentance uh, from the ground up and from the top down. And people are deeply shaken by this message. And we talked last time about how God had, in some ways, prepared the ground for Jonah. But Jonah is not prepared for the ground. And so I want us to read chapter 4 together. And let's actually start here uh, in chapter 3. And we'll start in verse uh, 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them, that is, to the Assyrians living in Nineveh. And he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, isn't this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, you do well to be angry. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth, or a shelter is the idea, maybe a kind of a little makeshift tent type of a thing. He made a shelter for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah <clears throat> so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die. 
and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry about the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant. And that word that's translated pity uh, would probably be better captured with something like you're concerned about the plant or you feel compassion for the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in one night and perished in a night. And should not I have concern for Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And the book ends right there, leaving us maybe looking for the next page. But what we're going to see, I hope, from God's word is that this, this construction, of the construction of this message as God has committed it to us in this book, is very intentional. This is uh, finally the moment when Jonah faces the truth, which he has been running for, running from this entire time. And it's a truth that faces us as well. And so what I want us to do today is I want us to just reflect on these three things. I want us to really look at Jonah and try to get Jonah clear in our heads. Because what he's doing is so far out uh, that uh, you know we might be tempted to, to shrug and turn away. I, I think it's the extremity of this chapter that's responsible for Jonah going down in the popular memory as a book about whales. But in fact, it's a book about Jonah and God. And so I want us to look carefully at Jonah. And I want us to look carefully at ourselves. And then I want us to look really carefully at God, what this says here. Who is this guy, Jonah, and what is he doing? And it's clear, I hope already, that what we've just read, this chapter 4, it, it shines a light on everything that's happened so far. Jonah says... At the very beginning, so he's, he's furious when God doesn't burn Nineveh to the ground. He's furious. And he says, he explains everything that he's done so far. And it, it says, and it's super ironic here. I hope we can feel the bite of the irony when it says here in verse 2, and he prayed to Yahweh. And he said, and he says, oh, Yahweh, the name of his God that he claims to fear and serve. Isn't this what I said when I was still in my country? This is what motivated him from the very beginning when he got this message from God and he said, nope. He said, that's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish because I knew this, because I knew this about you. I knew, and then listen to what he says. I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from the disaster. If you are familiar with the word of God, you might recognize that set of phrases. Even if you are not familiar with it, it might sound familiar to you just from today, because Pastor Nate prayed it earlier in his prayer. This is a... This is a quotation from scripture that would be very well known to any 
devout Israelite person of Jonah's day. It is a quotation that comes from God's encounter with Moses. You remember God uh, is giving the law to Moses and there's all this trouble, there's this disruption that happens. If you're in our our, uh, Sunday evening Bible reading, um, then this is not too far off. This is in Exodus 34. And there's all this trouble, and Moses asks God, he says, God, I want to see you. I want to see your glory the way it really is. And God says, no, you can't do that because that would kill you. But I will show you, and he calls it the back of my glory. It's like I'll give you a, 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 a partial experience of my glory. And then he, he reveals himself to Moses And he says this. He says this about himself. This is part of his declaration of his character. And Jonah knows this so well that it just comes flowing out when he's thinking about what God is like. What is God like? Well, he's very familiar with these things. Jonah is a guy, and this is the first thing that I want us to see really clearly about him. Jonah has a deep knowledge of God's word. If we don't get that, we will not grasp what is happening in this chapter or in this book. Jonah is not just some random guy who's mad at God. Jonah is a prophet. He is a chosen messenger of God. He is a person whose knowledge of God is deep and broad. And we won't take the time to do it now. But many of the things that Joseph has said here in this book, just a few phrases that we have from his speech are echoes of other parts of the Old Testament. Jonah is what we might think of as a a seminary-educated pastor, a theologian, a guy who really knows his stuff. And he's been involved in all this ministry, but married to that deep knowledge of God's word, Jonah, Jonah is deeply sick. He has developed a deep hatred toward the character of the God that he says that he worships. We have got to let that land. Jonah is raging. He is furious with God. And when he reaches out for words to express his fury, he doesn't say, God, I'm furious with you because you know how wicked these Assyrians are. He doesn't say, God, I'm furious with you because because these people have murdered so many. He doesn't say, God, how is Israel going to be saved with the Assyrians, you know, backing off and repenting? I mean, you know all the idolatry that's happening in my country. How will people turn back to you? These are not the words that come surging out of him. He is furious because God is merciful and gracious and patient, and forgiving to the wrong people, to the Assyrians. Those guys, absolutely not. God's graciousness and kindness and mercy to the Assyrians are so revolting to him that he would rather die than see it. And that prayer, I say prayer because the scripture calls it a prayer. What kind of a prayer is that? That prayer is one that, again, should remind us maybe of somebody 
There's only one other person who prays that God would kill him. It's another prophet. It's Elijah. And in the middle of Elijah's despair, God comes to him and restores him, turns him around, corrects his thinking. But Elijah is despairing because he has poured out his life ministering and has nothing to show for it. Nobody has listened to his message. Jonah has showed up, preached one sermon, and the entire city has turned to God. And Jonah is so sick that he wants to die. This is a deeply, deeply disturbed person. And Jonah feels this way about these people, but he, he wants God's grace himself. Right? Do you remember? That's what chapter 2 is. Chapter 2 is Jonah's psalm about sinking down into the ocean, and as he is going down, and as everything's going dark, he cries out to God for rescue. So when he uses these attributes of God, God's grace and mercy and patience and forgiveness, when he spits them out like curse words, he doesn't mean, he doesn't have this kind of like, you know, messed up view that God is weak, you know, he should be a God of strength. No, God like, or Jonah likes God's mercy for him. Jonah likes God's grace for him. Jonah likes God's forgiveness for him. That's fine. That's cool. He, he's on the right side of things. He's on the right team. But not those guys. It is, of course, God's purpose to give grace and mercy to his enemies every day. We'll see that a little bit more later. Poor Jonah, his theological problems have mentally and emotionally unhinged him. And that's, that's often the way it is. Our theological problems don't play themselves out just in, you know, in the kind of debates and paper writing and the books that we read. Our theological problems play themselves out in our thinking about everyday life. Our theological problems are expressed in our emotions. Jonah, and we just read this bit about the plant, right? God arranges this little object lesson for him. Jonah is just crazy with anger at God. And he stomps off and he goes and sits in his little shelter that he's made. And so God sends a plant for him. And it says, look, I mean, look, look at this, look at this phrase. It says here, uh, in verse 6, Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant that God sends. He, I mean, it's a plant, that's great. It's hot, that's great. But Jonah is just, he's manic. He's wild. And when God sends a worm to take away the plant, Jonah is, again, I want to die. I mean, look, I just want to make sure that we're understanding what this is saying. He says, God says to him in verse 9, do you do well to be angry about the plant? And Jonah says, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die about the plant. Here's my point. 
there's nothing funny about what's happening to Jonah. I mean, it is kind of, it's funny because it's ridiculous. But this is a guy who has just lost his way. He is unhinged because he refuses. He cannot come to grips with what God is. That's the issue for him. Jonah wants to be the guy who chooses who lives and who dies. He wanted death rather than to help the Assyrians. Right? He says, throw me in the ocean. Right? I'm running away from my God. The sailors say, you're doing what? You can't do that. That's nuts. And he says, throw me in the ocean. But I'll be over. So they throw him in the ocean. And then he decides, no, actually, I want to live instead of dying. Which God knows he's going to do, and God keeps him alive. And then he shows up and he preaches God's judgment. And he's furious because he wanted the Assyrians dead instead of alive. And he says, if the Assyrians aren't going to die, then kill me. God says, we're not going to do that right now. And so he sits down. He gets this plant from God. He's pumped. He wants this plant alive. God kills the plant. Now he wants to die. What, what Jonah really wants is to be the guy in charge. Jonah wants, in a sense, what every sinful person, what every one of us has ever wanted since the Garden of Eden. When the snake said to Eve, listen, this will make you like God. And Eve says, that, that sounds pretty good, actually. I would like to be like God, yes. Jonah wants to be like God. He wants to choose who lives and who dies. Now, that is a deeply uncomfortable picture of a person. This is not, this is not a feel-good nursery wall story. But thankfully, it's not over yet. We've got to look at Jonah. The main character of this story is God. The book is called Jonah, but it's actually about God. But before we take an extended look at God, I want us to move from Jonah to ourselves. And we'll see in a moment why, why that happens. Because this is a book that God has preserved for us that in a very unusual way speaks to us directly. So how about us? Jonah is a guy who has a very deep knowledge of God's word. Well, here we all are. I mean, just put this in context, right? You're not standing out on the street corner in the middle of some anti-God country. You're not, you're not there in, you know, Doha or you're not out in, you know, Moscow or wherever, whatever place you might pick where it's like, well, people really don't want to pick, don't want to hear God's message there. They're really against things there. You're not there. You're in church today. And a lot of us have been coming to this church for a long time and we've been going to church for our whole lives and God's been gracious to us. Like Jonah, we were raised maybe in, in environments where we heard God's word a long time and some of us have spent years educating ourselves about God's word. So it's really important that we ask ourselves this question. How do we read God's word? 
because there are, broadly speaking, two ways to read it. There's a way that gives life and there is a way that destroys. We need to make sure that we understand that today. We have a great reverence for God's word and we should. We place, we place a great priority on God's word and we should. And no one you know, would say, and it's right for us not to say, oh, I've read the Bible enough. I know enough about the Bible. Well, it's never true. The words of God give life to us but only if we read them the right way. God's word came to a wicked person like Manasseh. And the scripture says that he humbled himself before the word of God and he lived. But God's words have come to Jonah and he is throwing them back in God's face like rocks. God's word came to Zacchaeus a traitor to his people, an oppressor, a thief. And he received them and he lived. Jesus' enemies were people. We should never miss this. Jesus' enemies were people who were masters of the word of God. That was literally their job. If you see that phrase, experts in the law, that's what that means. These were guys whose job was to explain God's word to the people in a variety of contexts. And they hated Jesus. And they wanted him dead. How do we read God's word? Tim Keller has a fantastic little book on Jonah if you're looking for further thoughts. His book, The Prodigal Prophet, is just an excellent resource. In it, he writes this. Whenever we read the Bible in order to say, aha, I'm right, Whenever we read it to feel righteous and wise in our own eyes, we're using the Bible to make ourselves into fools or worse, since Proverbs says that the mark of evil fools is to be wise in their own eyes. In other words, if we feel more righteous as we read the Bible, we are misreading it. We are missing its central message. We are reading and using the Bible rightly only when it humbles us critiques us, and encourages us with God's love and grace despite our flaws. Jonah was a person who took what God meant to use for life and turned it into death. That's an old story. <coughs> so it's good for us to look at ourselves. How do we read God's word? What do we think about as we read it? How do we come away from God's word? Does it challenge us? Do we often find ourselves corrected? What Are there times that you can look back on not so long ago where your idea was like over here, your idea was A, and then you read God's word and you thought, oh my goodness, I've been wrong about A. It's, it's got to be B. And God's word is reordering us. Or because it is possible to do this, are we reading God's word and every time we read it, we just, we're, we're just confirming the things we already thought. God really is happy with me. I, I'm checking the boxes. Look at all those jerks out there. God is really angry with them because they are not checking the boxes. How do we read God's word? And what are we worshiping? 
Jonah said he feared Yahweh. You remember that when the sailors drag him up from under the decks and they say, who are you? Where are you from? Who's your God? Because we're all going to die here, so we really need help. Jonah says, I fear Yahweh who made heaven and earth. He knew all those right words. But for a long time now, he had obviously been going to idols. That's why Jonah wanted to die. If we think about idolatry, this is a phrase that we kind of toss around, right? Idolatry, or we have an idol, or something is an idol. It can be, we can be a bit fuzzy with that. The scripture says, in one of the words of the prophets, there's this long diatribe against idolatry. And the, the prophet describes a person making an idol. He says he goes out into the woods and he, he cuts down a tree. He chops it up into bits, right? Part of it he burns to warm his house and part of it he burns to cook his food. And then part of it he carves into an idol. And this is what idolatry is. He bows down to it, it says, and he says, save me. You are my God. Idolatry happens when we say to something, save me. If I don't have you, I can't live. If I don't have you, it's not worth it. And Jonah sees all these Assyrians turning away from evil. And he sees God turning away from judgment. And Jonah says, my life is not worth living. He has lost his gods. What was keeping Jonah alive was something other than Yahweh. Personal pride, maybe his status as a prophet could be. Because like we said before, he was the prophet of, of a national renewal. Not the prophet who got the Assyrians to repent. National power, maybe, maybe the nation of Israel, its strength and its status. Ethnic prejudice, my guys over everybody else. It's my culture, it's my nation, it's my race, and not those people who are our sworn enemies. How do we know if we have false gods like Jonah did? Jonah found out because his false gods were killed. And he had a conversation with the real God. How would we know? Well, what, what is it that gives us hope when things are tough? Is it God's character and God's promises and God's works? Or is it that although times are tough, I have this, what, a happy family? A strong country, a beloved hobby, can make idols out of anything. You can say to anything, you save me. I have a very good friend in China. He and his wife were part of our team for years. And uh, they took over management of a special needs orphanage in Shanghai. They care for Chinese children who were not able to get the expert medical care that they needed elsewhere. He's been the director of the orphanage for years. He and his wife have two adopted children, but the adoption process in China is complex. And when the pandemic started, the adoption process for all non-Chinese parents was stopped. 
And so my friend and his wife have not been able to complete the final stage of the adoption of their second son. He's lived with them for years. And this morning I saw a message from my friend telling us that the thing that they have feared for years has happened. His son has been ordered back to the state orphanage. And they have no power to refuse or resist. And he said that it was the worst thing that he could ever imagine, that their family was destroyed. And he didn't know how he was going to survive or what to think, but he was crying out for hope in God's love. And there is a guy who is not worshiping an idol. Things are hard, hard, hard. But he is not saying to his family, save me, you are my God. He is saying it to Yahweh. Jonah was angry because his gods were destroyed. One of the ways that we can know what we're worshiping is to look at what makes us angry. Are we angry about the destruction and misery that's caused by sin? Or, perhaps like Jonah, are we angered even when sin is reversed or overturned and people repent but something else gets trashed instead? Our reputation, our status, disrespect to us or to our tribe? Jonah was worshiping a false god because he did not believe that the true God wanted or maybe even knew what was good for him. He didn't believe that God really had his best interests in heart, at heart. He said that he did. But when God tells him, I want you to do this and I want you to do that, Jonah thought, that's not going to be good for me. That, that's going to be a disaster. I'm going to have to do it my way. I'm going to have to take things into my own hands to ensure the outcome that I need. Jonah's idolatry was revealed because he trusted himself and he was suspicious of God. And Jonah was brought to terrible, terrible ends that, thank God, I, I hope none of us ever will come to. But we can fall into the same patterns of thinking. How do we read God's word and what are we worshiping? Because each one of us can turn to the true God and say to him, you are my God, save me. And that's where we really need to reflect now, what we need to do is look at what Jonah is missing. Poor Jonah is in such a sad state, and it does not need to be that way. Jonah could right now, in the face of losing his prestige, in the face of questions about Israel's future, in the face of 
complete reorientation of his life up until now, he could be at peace and he could be confident because the truth is that God is a wonderful God. I said earlier that this book is about God and here's really where it, where it comes out. I want us to look at just four things that really come together so sharply in this final chapter about God. And we've seen Jonah. And we've seen ourselves, I hope. But let's really see God, the way that he comes out here. The first thing about God, and this is just so obvious, it's right there on the surface. It is amazing how patient God is. And Jonah just blows up. And he's raging and he's insulting God. And God, I mean, we just have to read this. Right? Jonah was angry, displeased him exceedingly. This is what I said when I was still in my country. That's why I went to Tarshish. I knew what you were like. Therefore, now please take my life. It's better for me to die than to live. Have you ever had a conversation with your kid like that? I, I haven't had any with my kids. Uh, that would be quite a thing. And what does God say? The Lord said, do you do well to be angry? God, I mean, I don't know. It's possible here that Jonah is really just trying to bait God into blasting him. That's the kind of thing a guy like Jonah would do, not fully grasping God's character yet again. But God speaks to him so gently and so kindly. And all of Jonah's terrible sins, which he is just eagerly manufacturing moment by moment, God just sets them to the side and he is patient. He gives him a little object lesson. He asks him questions. I mean, genuinely, this is something that reminds us more of like a, a counseling session than anything else. It's like, you just sit there, Jonah. In a minute, you're going to see a little plant. Right? That's what's happening here. God is so patient with Jonah. Jonah looks at the Assyrians and he says, these people are not even worthy to hear God's message. I'm done with all this. That's not what God says. And in fact, so often, so often in this book, we are drawn to contrast Jonah and God's perfect messenger, the guy who expressed God's character without interference, without refusal, without distortion, without destruction. Scriptures say the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes into the world and he doesn't look at these people over here or those people over there and say, no way, those guys are trash. They're not getting anything from God. Instead, he labors for years, for his whole lifetime. Because unlike Jonah, he had a choice about whether to come. He labors for his whole lifetime to preach the good news to people that he knows will kill him. God is so patient he is such a patient God. 
That is the kind of person that will save you and will not let you down. And secondly, here's God's little object lesson. Let's read this part again. It says in verse 6, Yahweh God, the Lord God, appointed a plant. This word appointed we see several times. It's one of the ways that God's character and status are highlighted. He appoints all the things that happen, the fish and the plant and the worm and the, the wind, all this kind of stuff, because God can do that. He appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from, the, from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, something which we do not experience in this part of the world. But just imagine standing in front of an oven on a hot day. It gets worse. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry about the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant. Or remember, we said that the idea is here, you feel compassion or you're concerned about the plant. You're concerned about the plant for which you did not work, you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And shouldn't I be concerned about, shouldn't I feel compassion for Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? How remarkable our God is for his compassion. What does that mean? It means you look at a person who is in trouble. You look at a person and you just, your heart connects with theirs. And you see them suffering and it hurts you too. You want them to do well. You want them to, you want them to be happy and successful. We all know what this means as parents. We all know what this means to look at our friends to look at the people that we love. We want things to be good for them. And when things are bad for them and we just feel we can't do anything, we're powerless. I'm sorry, I don't know what to tell you. But my wife and I have wept because of that message that my friend in China sent this morning. We can do nothing. But we and all of, our, all of his friends have cried and prayed because we love Aaron and Jessica and their family. And this is how God feels. And this is what he's drawing out from Jonah. He says, Jonah, how did you feel about that plant? Jonah really, really loved that plant. Because he needed it. It's really hot out here. That plant is really useful to have around. Keeps the sun off. And when the plant dies, Jonah is just gutted. Like, finally, one thing was going right for me, and now the plant's dead? God cares for people. And he does not care for them because he needs them. So many of our attachments 
we don't, we don't really choose. I mean, even if like Jonah, we're not totally mercenary about it. Like God just gave my children to me. I didn't, you know, go out and get them. I didn't pick them out from a lineup. God just gave them to me and I love them deeply. But everyone that God loves, he loves freely. He receives nothing that he needs from his creation. And every part of it that exists, exists because he chose for it to exist. Nothing ever came to God. And all those things that he has made, he loves and cares for freely and deeply. And it pains him to see the Assyrians suffering. Jonah looks at the Assyrians and he says, no way. Those guys have nothing in common with me. Do you remember his closing words in his, his little prayer in chapter 2? <clears throat> he says in chapter 2, verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. Jonah's still totally blinded when he says this. He doesn't realize that he's got more idols in front. He can't even see past his idols. He's got idols coming out of his ears. And he looks at the Assyrians and he says, no way, those guys are nothing like me at all. Right here, I'm here praying the correct prayer to you. Those jokers, sackcloth on the animals, are you serious? There's nothing in common with those guys. What about God? How does God feel? We know how he feels because of Jesus Christ. Jesus identifies himself with us by becoming a human. I mean, Jonah didn't even want to go into the city. But Jesus became one of us. Not a peer, not an equal, but something immeasurably less than himself because he freely loves us. This is God's attitude, a God of compassion. That is the kind of God that you can turn to to save you from death. In verse 11, where he says this, God says, shouldn't I pay, shouldn't I pity Nineveh? Shouldn't I care for Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. What a remarkable kindness. I think this is the third thing about God that emerges so clearly. God's kindness We might say perhaps God's mercy. These two things are so closely related. This phrase, he says, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. Right hand from their left. There are two ways of taking that. Uh, It's sometimes thought to refer to children, that there are 120,000 children in the city. I think it's better probably to understand this as a moral description because that phrase can be used to mean people who don't know right from wrong. And I think that's what God is saying here. He's saying, shouldn't I care about this city in which there are 120,000 people who are just completely lost? They are just totally 
They, they don't even know what they're doing. Immaturity, blindness, spiritual darkness rules in that city. And when God looks at that, he sees it with sadness. His heart goes out to these people and he feels a generous care for them. He says, listen, Jonah, you cared about this plant, right? You didn't do anything for that plant. I made these people. I have raised them up. I could name each one of them and tell you their stories, their joys, and their sadnesses, and they are all just in darkness. I care about these people. God does not look at these people with disgust. That's so easy for people to do. That's certainly what Jonah did. So easy for us to do. We look at people who care nothing for God, have no idea about his ways. Right? And so we, can, we can just so easily fall into this. There are people around us, look at these idiots. You know, you can watch 24 hours a day, seven days a week. YouTube videos and news shows that exist solely to mock other people who are doing wrong. God does not do that. He feels a deep compassion for these people. Jonah looks at this city and he is raging. Jesus, God in the flesh, stood over the city of Jerusalem that would shortly kill him and knew its wickedness. And what did he do? He cried because he cared for those people in their darkness. Jesus, as he is being executed weeks after that, in Luke 23, 34, what does he say? He says, Father, forgive them. Forgive these people. Who? The soldiers? Yes, and everybody else. And why, why should they be forgiven? Why does Jesus call out for their forgiveness? Because he says they don't know what they're doing. Really? The high priest doesn't know what he's doing? I mean, this whole cast of people, their whole deal is that they know God. And they arranged the murder. Yeah, Jesus says about these people, no, they are so lost in their darkness. And that makes him feel sorry. It stirs up his feelings toward them, not of disgust, but of care. What a wonderful God. How often are we in the darkness, brothers and sisters? How often are we unable somehow to choose the right from the wrong again and again and again? And yet this is a God that we can turn to and we can say, save me. You are my God. And finally, and I think crucially, the fourth characteristic that comes out about God as we look at this passage is God's justice. This is a crucial element because here Jonah is furious about God's kindness and mercy and patience and forbearance. In that declaration of God's character that he gives to Moses, the one that Jonah is quoting here, God also highlights his justice. Jonah leaves that part out. 
because he thinks that God is being totally unjust. But God is not being totally unjust, not at all. In fact, God sent Jonah to warn the Assyrians that he was not going to overlook their sin. That's what brought him here in the first place, is God's justice. And here's Jonah. Jonah is rebelling and rejecting. What does God do? He doesn't just walk away. He says, Jonah, we got to deal with that. Is it right what you are doing? Is it just? The judgment that hangs over Nineveh also hangs over Jonah. And God's generosity and kindness and graciousness toward Nineveh is copied in his generosity and kindness and graciousness toward Jonah because there are consequences for sin. Right? Jonah is mad now, but he'll be judged for his sins just like every Assyrian would be for theirs. God doesn't overlook wrong. And that's good. Because sin and wrongdoing, it threatens everything that God has made. Jonah's words and Jonah's actions threaten, that God, threaten what God has made. It threatens the society that it lives in, that he lives in. It threatens his loved ones. It threatens to steer them down the wrong path. It threatens to turn people away from God's goodness. Just as much as the Assyrians' terrorism and murder does. All of these sins tear at God's creation. And God will not leave them unaddressed. Jonah wants justice for other people and mercy for him. That's his problem. But what does God want? Well, we've been talking about Jesus and Jonah. Jesus came to bring God's justice and love together for each one of us. Jesus came to square the circle. How can God be just and punish sin and also be merciful? And Jesus says, this is how. In myself, I will take the punishment for your sin. You trust in me and you belong to me. We just sang these words. My life is hidden with Christ on high. That's from the scripture. That's what it says. Your sins and my sins can be resolved in Christ without destroying us. Jonah's happy for other people to be destroyed, but God is not. God sent Christ to draw all people to himself. Anyone who would hear, anyone who would believe would be brought to the Father through the Son. And in him, our sins would be taken away, justly, fairly resolved. So that instead of being outside, mad, looking at everything that's done until you just die of heat stroke, this is a, little, this is a picture of Jonah in hell in advance. God says, no, that's not the plan. That is not my plan. My plan is that you will repent. That your sins will be taken away as only I can take them away. Justly and fairly and rightly. And every wrong will be dealt with. And you will somehow live 
This is a God that we can say, save me, you are my God. Why does Jonah end so abruptly with this question mark? Well, Jonah disappears. And I think one of the authors that I read, I don't recall who, said that Jonah disappears so that we can realize that God's questions are aimed at us. That is so true. So let's take this not as God's conversation with some sad and frustrated man long ago whose story is long ended. Let's take this as God drawing each one of us, you and me, into that story. Scripture says that these people, although they're dead, they still speak. Here's Jonah. We've been caught in his conversation with God unsuspecting how will we answer these questions that God is posing now that there's no one left to answer them but us let's do what I trust Jonah did after this when he finally sat down to write this book about himself hardly a flattering portrait he repented and he trusted in the only one who can truly save Let's pray. Holy Father, you know all things. You see our failures and our flaws and our weakness. And yet, God, you've given us the grace in just a small way to see your goodness, your love, your truth, the intensity of your justice. Father, we pray that you would give your grace to each one of us who's here today, every person who hears your word, to put our hope, to fix our hope for life on you, Yahweh, who made heaven and earth, who sent your son, Jesus Christ, to reconcile us to you. Thank you. Thank you for your patience, for your kindness for your compassion, and for your justice. We pray that we would delight in them and that we would delight to share them with others. We pray in Jesus' name.